0: Good morning. Welcome to our class today. We're so glad that you're here with us. Let's go ahead and begin class with prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we are so thankful that you are our Father and we thank you for Jesus who revealed the truth about you and your kingdom and we're so happy that your kingdom operates on a completely different mechanism and system than the kingdoms of this world. We ask now that your Holy Spirit will join us as we study today. We ask that your Spirit and your agencies be active on this earth to bring about the events as you know they need to transpire so that we can see you coming soon. And we know, according to the Bible, that before you come, freedoms are going to be eroded in this world and a system of coercion is going to be set up. We may be seeing events like this happening in this world and we pray that you will comfort your people, give us wisdom and discernment at this time and show us how we can be effective to call people out of a, the, the corrupt systems of this world into your kingdom we pray in your holy name amen, amen. we are doing uh, lesson number eight in the uh, quarterly education our memory text for today is second timothy 316 all scripture is given by the inspiration of god and is profitable for doctrine for reproof for correction for instruction in righteousness that's from a uh, new king james version What's the problem with that translation? We've talked about this many times. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it, but just because you've heard me a hundred times say it, tell me the problem. This is a mistranslation. What's the problem? All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. What's the problem? Is all Scripture actually given by God? There's lots of Scripture out there. Book of Mormon, Koran, Pseudepigrapha, um, uh, the, 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 the Epigrapha. Lots of Scripture out there that we don't believe is inspired by God. So not all Scripture is inspired. So the way it should read, all Scripture, comma, inspired by God, comma, is beneficial. So any Scripture that God inspired, it's beneficial. But Scripture inspired by the other spirit, that's not beneficial. Okay. So if you have the idea that, that, well, I just always assume that if it's scripture, then it's, it's inspired. And anything not, I wouldn't call scripture. That's fine. But when you deal with a lot of people, for instance, the original King James Bible back in 1611, it included the epigrapha. Okay. So if you have somebody with that original version, and if you have somebody with the Catholic version, they have it in there. And then they will turn to 2nd Timothy and they will read in 2nd Timothy that all scripture is inspired and they'll go right to the epigrapha and they'll say, this is my scripture. So, you, you have to be careful how you understand those things. Second paragraph in the lesson, a Sabbath lesson reads But for the purpose of this week's teaching, we will discover in, in the Bible story another theme, namely that of a teacher and his students. They keep failing the tests, they keep failing the tests, but he patiently explains their lessons. What do you think of the idea that one of the themes of Scripture is of a teacher and his students? Who is the teacher? Capital T. Who's the teacher? Jesus. Who are the students? Well, what about Peter? 1 Peter 1 10 through 12. And I'm just going to uh, uh, ellipse this. Concerning the salvation, even angels long to look into these things. Even angels long to look in. <clears throat> Would this include the angels in heaven? Are they longing to look into these things? Would they be students then? Or Are they also learning from the teacher things they didn't already know? Or are students just humans? Yeah. Consider this out of the book Patriarchs and Prophets, along with what Peter was saying. But the plan of redemption had a yet broader and deeper purpose than the salvation of man. Pause with that. This is Patriarchs and Prophets, um, page 68. What? The plan? More than my salvation? Isn't the gospel all about how I, how we get saved? Isn't that the whole deal? It's about us. That's how it's often presented. No, it's not true. The ultimate good news is not that we can be saved. That is good news, to be sure. But the ultimate good news is who we get to spend eternity with. We get to spend eternity with God who is like Jesus. The good news is about God who through Jesus provides salvation that we can spend eternity with him, but but it's not primarily about us. So that's the ultimate good news. So the plan of redemption had a broader and deeper purpose than the salvation of man. It was not for this alone that Christ came to the earth. It was not merely that the inhabitants of this little world might regard the law of God as it should be regarded, but it was to vindicate the character of God before the universe. Pause. How should the law of God be regarded? Isn't that interesting? Interesting. Christ came for our salvation, but it was also that the universe would have the right regard we we and the that and the universe would have the right regard for the law of God. How should it be regarded as design law don 't you remember Satan, in the opening of the great controversy, declared that the law of God could not be obeyed, and if man did obey, every sin must meet its punishment urged. Satan. Satan is the originator of imposed law, made up rules require infliction of punishments it distorts the character and government of God and incites fear and rebellion. That's what it does. This lie about God which roots in the lie about God's law and so the message to lighten the world that we are to give is to calling people to worship him who made the heavens the earth, the creator whose laws are design laws. That's part of the final message. Continue on with the quote to this result, meaning the result of vindicating the character of God, so we regard the laws as it should be. To this result of His great sacrifice, its influence upon the intelligences of other worlds as well as upon man—what? The sacrifice of Jesus was for the intelligences of other worlds, for sinless beings. Sinless beings? If that's the case, then this wasn't a legal payment for sin, then, was it? You see the lie that has, has infected the whole world if you're a Christian? Is that uh, Jesus died to pay my payment. But wait a minute. The intelligence of other worlds needed it. They didn't need a payment. What they need? It was to expunge the lies about God that Satan had told, that they didn't have clarity on. Continuing with the quote, the Savior looked forward when just before his crucifixion, he said, now is the judgment of this world. Judgment, think that through. Well, we've spent a whole day on that. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out, and I, if I be lifted up, will draw all unto me. This is how it's written here, and that's an accurate quote from the Greek. Almost every translation includes the word men. Draw all men unto me. Men is not in the Greek because it was not about just this earth. It was about all the intelligences of the universe being reconciled and brought back to God. I will draw all unto me. But it says, Jesus said, now now, now shall the prince of this world be cast out. Cast out of where? Think this through with me now. What kind of action... Is Jesus' death on the cross? Is his death on the cross an act of might and force and power by God to somehow physically throw someone out? Is that what the death on the cross was? That The cross is God using angels with flaming swords to bar Satan in some physical manner. Is this a physical fight going on? But Jesus said, when I'm lifted up, the prince of this world will be cast out. His crucifixion casts out Satan. How many times do you think about casting out, you're envisioning some type of physical pushing him away? No, what kind of act is, is Christ's sacrifice at the cross? It's a revelation of truth and love. That's exactly what it is. It's a surrendering, a laying down of physical. Christ surrendered physical might. He surrendered physical power. Yet, Satan is cast out. Cast out of where? He's cast out of the affections of the heavenly beings and all human beings who, through the sacrifice of Jesus, are won back to trust in God. The battle between Christ and Satan has never been a physical battle. It's always a battle over love and trust. So the act, and continue on with the quote now. The act of Christ in dying for the salvation of men would not only make heaven accessible to men, but before all the universe it would justify God and his son in their dealing with the rebellion of Satan. It would establish the perpetuity of the law of God and would reveal the nature and the results of sin. What does it mean, establish the perpetuity of the law? Perpetuity. That's a common word we use every day, don't we? Yes.
1: Yes. I don't know what it means. No, we don't know. It's
0: eternal. Eternal, never changing, never amending, constant. Perpetuity. It, per- it persists for all eternity. It doesn't change. The perpetuity of the law. If the law was a system of imposed rules like humans make up, it would not be perpetual. Human laws are amended and changed all the time. Human laws can be bent. We can cheat human laws. Look at the cheating that happens in every human system in government that's ever been initiated on earth. The people in power always cheat, and bend the laws. They always do. And every, Is anybody going to argue me on that? No. You can bend and cheat and get around human laws. Maybe some of us have done it on the highway. You ever bent and cheated that speed limit just a little bit? Okay? You can do that. Okay? You cannot bend, change, or get around God's law. You can't do it. Because God's laws are constants that the universe is built upon. We all know that life is designed by God. If he were to change in any way the laws that he built life on, then life as we know it in the universe ceases to exist. That's why it's never changed. Yes.
1: Well, not only that, but human laws have a beginning. Okay? Perpetuity implies that it was in evidence uh, eternity past as well. God's law
0: had no beginning. Because God's laws all have their origination in his character and are expression, ultimately, of love and the principles upon which love operates. Yes, so I think that's well said. If the law could have been changed, Jesus would not have had to die. Jesus died because it was the only means and mechanisms whereby the species human could be actually put back in harmony with God's law and expose Satan for the liar and fraud he is, both. Here's another Bible text that supports everything I just said in that quote that we just read. This is out of Colossians 1, verse 20. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Jesus and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. What's reconciled to God through the shedding of Christ's blood according to Colossians here? Paul writing to the Colossians? All things in heaven and in earth, heavenly things are reconciled. Was the blood then shed for angels? Yes. Yes, it was. And again, they were sinless. This is not a legal payment to pay the price of sin. What's the blood doing then for angels? What did they need? The blood is symbolic of? Life. And in the blood of Christ, of course, is the life of Christ. And all the fullness, it just said, God was to have his fullness dwell in Jesus. So when you see the fullness of God in Jesus and his life is shed, you're seeing God's life being shed. It's revealing that God is not like Satan has made him out to be. When you understand the significance here, Satan is a liar and a fraud. God is trustworthy. Here's another quote from the book of Desire of Ages, 758 and 761. To the angels in the unfallen world, the cry, it is finished, had deep significance. It was for them, as well as for us, that the great work of redemption had been accomplished. They share with us the fruits of Christ's victory. Wow, get your mind around that. Not until the death of Christ was the character of Satan clearly revealed to the angels or to the unfallen worlds. They didn't see it clearly until the death of Christ. Then they saw it clearly. The arch-apostate had clothed himself with deception that even holy beings had not understood his principles. They had not clearly seen the nature of his rebellion. I'm going to tell you, if you have Christian discernment, you can see the same methods being employed in our society today where people are being propagandized and lied to, and they don't know how to discern facts and evidence from proclamations and claims. Satan had no facts and evidence on his side. He only had proclamations, claims, lies, but lies can be proclaimed, okay, rhetoric, words, but he had no evidence, no truth. It didn't support him. When you have no truth on your side, you don't want investigation. You don't want examination. When you have truth, you beg for people to look, just examine the evidence, folks. Continuing on, Satan saw that his disguise was torn away. What tore it away? The evidence of God's character, the fullness of God, dwell in Christ, and all power had been given to him in John 13, and he used his power to serve and to minister, and on the cross when his creatures are killing him, what did he do with his power? He laid it down and he forgave them. He did not use his, get your mind, he did not use power to take their freedom to kill him. This is why in Revelation, every time you see the scene in heaven, the lamb that was slain, worthy, 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 is the lamb who was slain. Worthy, worthy, he's worthy to have all power because he's proven he's safe with power. I will tell you guys, as much as I would love all power, I would abuse the power. I know I would. I know there were things I would do this week that would not be godly if I had all power.
1: <laughs>
0: but we are safe because Jesus has all the power. He would not. Do you understand what happened to the cross was an act of injustice? It was the greatest act of injustice against the only true innocent. You hear this all the time. We've got to protect innocent life. We've got to do this. Jesus was the only true innocent. Perfectly sinless, perfectly innocent, and he didn't restrict freedom to kill him. The principles of God's government, because love only exists in freedom, he has to win us with truth and love. He can't coerce us with with force. There's a hand somewhere, Wendell.
2: We have been critical in our um, religious thoughts about people who put a gap where there shouldn't be a gap in scripture and timelines and whatnot. When I read the, the passage before, John 12, which you read before, the time for judging this world has come, and Satan, the ruler of this world, will be cast out. I put a, a division in my mind between now the time for judgment and he will be cast out as in after all eternity or whatever, you know, if, if everything's over. No, he was cast out then.
0: That's right. That's when he was cast out of those minds.
2: There was no waiting. He was cast out then. It wasn't, okay, now I have the right to power and everything, and I can cast him out with power at a later date.
0: Because that's what truth. In your own experience, if you've believed a lie, and then you have an epiphany, you're convinced by some truth that the idea before was false, and you accept the truth, what happens to the lie in your mind? Cast it out. It's cast out. That's what happened. The truth and there was no stopping it. Once once they saw the truth, for those who were sensitive and loved truth, the lie could no longer uh, hold in their mind. It was cast out. So continue on with this quote. So Satan's whole disguise was torn away. His administration was laid open before the unfallen angels, before the heavenly universe. He had revealed himself as a murderer. By shedding the blood of the Son of God, he had uprooted himself from the sympathies of the heavenly beings. Henceforth, his work was restricted. Whatever attitude he might assume, he could no longer wait the angels as they came from the heavenly courts and before them accused Christ's brethren of being clothed with the garments of blackness and the defilement of sin. The last link of sympathy between Satan and the heavenly world was broken at the cross, okay? No longer, but they listened to him. Now, how was he cast out? It wasn't a force shield that got put around earth and he's trying to go up like in the book of Job to to tempt the angels in heaven and it's like, zzz, 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 can't get off the earth. No, it's anytime he tries to speak to an angel from heaven, talk to the hand, I don't listen. Their minds are closed to him now. They have no sympathy for him. They have no empathy. They see him for what he is. He's exposed. The only place Satan has power to act now is on earth to human beings who still listen and believe his lies and practice his method. Yes?
1: Wouldn't it seem then that because the rest of the universe saw the truth in Christ's death, that they do not have the dichotomy between the character of Christ and the character of God that the imperial
0: law people... (laughs) Yeah, I would say that's true for them now. That's right. If you you go on to read the chapter that I've quoted from, you'll find that there were still more questions yet unanswered uh, that the angels had, but it was not about God anymore. Those questions were settled. But they had questions about, I think, how does God's system restore a sinner who's in rebellion to righteousness? That didn't fully necessarily, and, and we get to be part of the answer to that question as we cooperate with God, and they see through evidence how our hearts are transformed. They see God's methods actually work in healing us back to righteousness. So there's other questions. There to, to be answered, but but the question about God was answered. So I'm not gonna go through this, I will just tell you that because of the lie of imperialism, you remember who, according to this author that I just read, Zara of Ages 761, murdered Jesus? And what does murder mean? What does murder mean? Kill them. Kills them. Okay? And you might say unjustly kills them rather than executing under a death sentence of a government, right? But Satan murdered Jesus here, okay? Understand that because of the imperial law lie in Christianity, essentially every Christian denomination teaches that God killed Jesus at the cross. That God, in order for justice' sake, when all of our sins were placed upon him, the wrath of God fell upon him, and God executed him to pay the price of what sin requires. It's a lie. God did not lay a hand. If you believe Jesus, my God, my God, why have you? Not why are you killing me? God surrendered him there. And people go, well, why would God surrender? Why would he leave his son? Because God was in the son, reconciled the world to himself. Because Jesus was carrying out the father's purpose. What was the father's purpose in sending Jesus? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. What was the purpose of God? One, to reveal all this truth to secure his universe. And two, to save us okay what's the only way that can happen the only way jesus said it to peter don't you know i could ask my father's have 12 legion of angels put up the sword do you do you not want me to finish the mission i'm here to finish he was on a mission to the cross now what's the why did jesus stay away from lazarus for three days why Die. Ah, because Jesus is the source of life, and he needed to stay away for Lazarus to die so that he could then raise him and demonstrate his power over death. It was part of the evidence. Could Jesus die as long as he's still connected to his father, the source of life? No. The father didn't abandon his son because he was mad at him or because all oh, well, the sins I can't look at it anymore. Oh, it's offensive to me. I've got to stop. No, this is silliness.
1: He also got freedom. Christ
0: chose
1: to that's, take that path.
0: That's correct. And God would not restrict his
1: freedom uh, by intervening.
0: And God chose to cooperate by letting him go so he could fulfill the purpose that the Godhead knew needed to be accomplished to win the war. So this is necessary. If you understand how reality works, he couldn't die as long as the source of life stayed connected to him. So this was not a punishment by the Father. It's such a corruption. It's such a distortion. Anyway, I'm not going to go through them. I have a bunch of quotes from various church organizations, Roman Catholic, Evangelical, Seventh-day Adventists, and others showing, it's in the notes, that they all teach that God killed Jesus at the cross, which is a, a, a gross fabrication. It's part of that beastly wine of Babylon that corrupts Christianity. Sunday's lesson, first paragraph. The phrase, the image of God, has captivated interpreters of the Bible for centuries. What is this image in which the first humans were created? For example, does it mean that God looked in a mirror and formed his new creation to look like himself? Or does it mean that humans are more like God than any other form of life are? Or does it refer to a spiritual and intellectual similarity and compatibility between the creator and his human creation? The scriptures do not give any precise explanation of this expression, even though scholars have derived from scripture many interpretations of what it could mean, However, we can see that after sin, the image has been changed, which is why Ellen White wrote that the goal of education is to restore in man the image of his maker. Education, page 14 to 16, to restore man. What do you understand the image of God to be?
3: How do you say be perfect, design perfect? They've got to get back to that perfection of character.
0: So, what is that? Oh, perfection of character, okay. Character of love, okay. That's primarily what I believe
3: it is, but the two two terms are used in the Spirit of Prophecy, form and feature.
0: Okay, form and feature. Intelligence, would that be? Is it individuality? Is it capacity of procreation? Is it capacity for dominion and ruling over all of these, none of these, some of these? What do you think it means that education is to restore the image of God in man? What would the language that education is to restore the image of God in man refer to? Would it refer to something beyond the form, beyond the physical? So something beyond the physical is being referred to if education is part of the restoration, isn't it? Wendell?
2: When we talk about um, becoming like God, it's a relationship, and so... It is an education, but it's an education of us about God and our, our growth to be like Him. As we behold, as we behold Him, we become like Him.
0: Okay. All right. I think there's absolute truth in that. As I was reflecting on this, I thought, well, what are the two two core, primary, foundational identifiers of God in Scripture? There are two. Okay. <laughs> I, I put both of those together as one. Okay, so I kind of put those together as one. But every time there's a question of, is this a true God or is this a false God? True God or false God? True God or false God? How do we know the true God from the false God? There's one identifier. We'll come to the one you said in a moment. As operate, what? Nope, nope. Service. Nope, nope. Throughout the whole, body. every time a prophet comes along and they're worshiping idols, what does he always call them back to? Worship Creator. 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 Okay, the true God is the Creator. Always, and that's why the, the the three angels' messages: worship Him who made the heavens, the earth. Okay, so one core identifying factor of the true God from all the false is He's a Creator. Satan's not a Creator; is Creator. And then the other is His character of truth and love, love and truth those are the two and if you want to separate those you could say three then okay creator truth love I, I don't have a problem with that but I was really going that way okay and I see truth always as a man I thought of the truth putting in there but I always see truth as a manifestation of love because love never really deceives or bears false witness love is always truthful isn't it true isn't that really true yeah love doesn't deceive because deception hurts and that wouldn't be an act of love so I subordinate that, but you can separate if you want. But, but creator, God is creator. And then when you look at that, these two characteristics God as creator, but God as love humankind was created in the image of God to be procreators in love. They were designed to be the repository, repository, the place where something resides or exists. The repository of God's what? You can say character. I'm, I'm perfectly comfortable with that. His love. I can say that. What else? What's the new covenant? I will write my law. law. Where? In your hearts. hearts and minds. So, what's to be reposited, or what are we to carry around? What are we? And this law, you understand, God's law, design law, is a living law. You cannot understand God's law written on stone. You can't. Because God's law is the law of life. Stone does not live. Stone does not sacrifice itself. Stone does not give for another. So, so, stone does not cry when someone they love is hurt. Stone is not compassionate. Why do you think in Scripture they're constantly called hard-hearted or move the heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh, okay? So we were designed by God to be procreators who were the repositories of his design laws or methods of love, how love functions. That was That's how we're in his image. We can create beings in our image, and as God designed, we can love. As God designed, we can love. Well, we still have procreative abilities today, that ability has not been taken away do we as a species on planet earth since adam's fall do we operate consistently on the principles of love or has selfishness infected humanity and corrupted us i think that's a rhetorical question so if selfishness is operating as the motivator in our action if that's what's operating whose image do we bear even if we're procreative if we're procreative selfishly whose image do we bear See, the battle between Christ and Satan, in this battle, God wants to write His law in our hearts and minds. Satan, which is truth, love, freedom what Russell was saying, Satan wants to destroy the law of love from our hearts and fill us with fear and selfishness. Do you see forces at work in our society maybe magnified in the last couple of months or the last week, that are inciting fear, that are inciting selfish acts? To get what you think will make you feel safe no matter what you have to do to get it? Here's a quote from the book Acts of the Apostles, page 476. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Second Corinthians 5.17 Through the power of Christ, men and women have broken the chains of sinful habit. They have renounced selfishness. Is this a legal process here? That's not a legal process. Becoming renewed in love. The profane have become reverent. The drunken, sober, the pro- profligate. That's another common word we use a lot today, isn't it? <laughs> profligate. Do you know what a profligate is? Okay, that's someone who is shamelessly immoral. We don't have anything in our society that promotes and advances the complete profane and immoral, do we? I mean, think about the, I won't mention any family names, but there are some famous families that are constantly having millions of people follow them on social media for their profane and shameless, ugly things that they do. The drunk and sober, the profligate, This is what happens. The old becomes new. Prophet becomes pure. Souls that have borne the likeness of Satan have become transformed into the image of God. This change is in itself the miracle of miracles. A change wrought by the Word, capital W, the Word. Remember, the Word was made flesh by Jesus. It is one of the deepest mysteries of the Word. We cannot understand it. We can only believe it as declared by the scripture. It is Christ in you, hope of glory. And you know what that's called, Christ in you, in hope and hope of glory? There's a one word, begins with an M, that the Bible ta- says Christ in you, hope of glory, is a mystery. The mystery. And if you read about the, uh, the, the um, angels of Revelation as the seals are being unfolded, I think it's the sixth, right before the, yeah, at the end of the sixth seal, Right before the seventh, seventh as Christ comes, it says at this time, the mystery of God will be accomplished. And what's the mystery? Christ in you, the hope of glory. That all of this ugly, selfish stuff in our character is replaced and we are new creatures in Christ. So what is it to bear the likeness of Satan? To be selfish, to exploit others for self, to be profane, to debase oneself, to be immoral. What does it mean to bear the image of Christ, to be purified in heart, mind, and character, to love God and others, to no longer be selfish, to be honest, kind, generous? So after Adam and Eve sinned, Satan sought to destroy the image of God in humanity. What are some of Satan's methods to accomplish this? Well, this is out of a book called Adventist Home, or Advent Home, page 326. What do you think of this? It was Satan's studied effort in the antediluvian age, that's the time before the flood, to pervert the marriage institution, to weaken its obligations and lessen its sacredness, for in no sure way could he deface the image of God in man and open the door to misery and vice. Has the marriage institution been corrupted through human history? I will just give you some examples. Male abuse, control, domination of their wives and daughters, treating them like property and subordinating them to husbands and fathers as if they had no individuality of their own, trading them like cattle. This is, this is almost in every culture up until this modern age, this is how women have been treated through history. Very rarely for a woman to be actually have independence or autonomy. But, how has marriage been corrupted? That's one, one form. It's not the only form. Wives who abuse and mistreat their husbands. Do you understand that can happen too? Not as common, but it's still a, a corruption. How about adultery? And that happens on both sides. Betrayal of the trust on any, on any side. Polygamy, which make women into objects of passion. You notice throughout history, polygamy almost always is practiced in one direction. Again, uh, turning women to objects of passion and pleasure for men, for the benefit of men. Prostitution, which corrupts the union into a transaction for selfish indulgence. Pornography. Fertility cults, which ex- ex- elevates the, um, the physical uh, to the object of worship, typically worshiping the feminine. Living together without marriage, without commitment, without self-sacrifice, as long as it's convenient. Hardness of heart, so love is driven out in the marriage that results in divorce. Progressivism, in which there are no genders, no male, no female, no purpose, and no need for ma- marriage. Why is marriage, as God designed, related to our sanctity, our purity? Why is perverting marriage so destructive to us and so damaging to the image of God in people? Why? This, everything is tied into design law. Everything is tied into how God built reality to work. If we don't understand this, then we, we end up with platitudes. We end up with rules. And we end up with rules, then we still end up with bad, dysfunctional marriages where hardness of heart happens. Yes?
1: Be in God's image. God said it's not good that man should be alone. Okay. God needed, Adam needed someone to love. And love being an experience of service, Yep. a, a growth uh, capability to literally give towards and, and to work, to sacrifice itself to make uh, his mate's life better. It is. And, and in return, it would benefit him as well. And the, two, the two become a synergy that's greater than the sum of the parts.
0: Oh, I love that. I love that. Yes.
3: I would say unity when two become one, like the father and the son. I understand how marriage is supposed to work. The the husband loves the wife, gives to the wife. The wife loves the husband and gives to the husband, therefore keeping the selfishness out of each of their hearts. They're they're giving to each other in circles. This
0: is how reality works. Exactly correct. No, this is well done. So where did God design love to operate at its fullest and purest? Where was that designed to have its greatest intensity, intimacy, where two become one? It was in the marriage, wasn't it? Now think about, you can love your children, but if you have a healthy marriage, doesn't your love for your spouse go into intimacy levels that you never have with your children? Isn't that true? And I don't mean just physical. What happens in the hearts and minds of people, you already described it, who experience this kind of love in a marriage as God designed? What happens to them? Does it impact their characters? If we experience marriage as God designed, do we become more selfish or more selfless? Does it actually impact us? We become more selfless. We absolutely do. Do we become more exploitive or more caring, compassionate, and concerned for others if we have a marriage as God designed? We become more compassionate, not more exploitive. So love, if we practice it in the marriage as God designed, we are changed by the act of doing it. This is law of love. Love. It's law of exertion. The more we exercise, we get stronger at doing something. That's what happens when we exercise. What happens to people if they allow fear to rule them in their marriage? Fear of rejection, fear of uh, not being good enough, fear of abandonment, fear of loss, fear of being taken advantage of or exploited, fear of not being pretty enough or thin enough or strong enough or making enough money. What happens if fear takes hold in the marriage, in the relationship? Does fear allow people to experience genuine love? No, it's an obstacle to love, isn't it? Does fear lead to greater development of noble traits of character? Noble traits of character. No. If fear rules the heart, then what actions follow? Self-protection we hide things from our spouse, we lie about things, we cover things up. we may create rules that we abide by to make us feel safe. We may demand our spouse keep our rules to show us respect.
1: involved
0: May. In determining and defining what marriage is or isn't. Oh,
1: okay. Incentives for dissolving or disincentives for getting involved.
0: But what happens to fear when love is experienced? When we really experience love, what happens to fear? <laughs> so, in this world of sin, even. Marriage is a place where love is to thrive and grow, and it will cast out fear. So, so it's a place where a person can come with, with their, because we all have them. How many of you have insecurities? How many of you have fears that if people knew certain things about you, they wouldn't like you, they wouldn't hang out with you? But in a marriage relationship, as it functions as God, you open yourself completely. If it functions in love, you share the most embarrassing and things about yourself you were sure that they would never want to be with you again and you experience what? Acceptance. Love. Acceptance. I love you. That doesn't matter to me. I love you. I don't I may not love your history, but I'm not marrying your history, I'm marrying you. And see, this is part of understanding the true gospel. Every one of us have histories, facts, and things that, that we are not proud of. The question in a marriage is not, have you done some things that you're not proud of? The question is, who are you today? Are you kind? Are you loyal? Have you, have you experienced what we just read about in Corinthians? That the old is gone and the new has come. And you now have lovely character and you may not be perfect but you have integrity you'll own your shortcomings you'll deal with yourself you'll acknowledge when you slipped up you'll seek to be the best and most perfect spouse you can be as i will for you even though we know we're not perfect it's our hard attitude to be and so what happens when you're in a relationship where someone knows those secrets and they still love you what happens to your fear it's part of god's plan as well it's beautiful What happens to the character of people when the physical aspects of marriage become merely gratification for the self? Pornography, prostitutes, serial relationships, one-night stands, polygamy, or simply using your spouse for gratification. What happens to that character? Do we see how marriage as God designed is for the development of God-like character? The joy of godlike love, the expansion of godlike abilities that Russell referenced a moment ago. And do you see why Satan attacks the marriage? Consider this quote. This is out of Signs of the Times, uh, June 13, 1895. Satan worked upon such principles as would conform those who sympathized with him to his own corrupt standard and would assimilate them with his own satanic nature. It was his determined purpose to efface from man the image of God and stamp upon the souls of his subjects his own image and superscription. He employed in his work the most deceptive methods and was successful in leading men to cooperate with him in rebellion against God. Christ gives to him the title the Father of Lies, the Accuser of the Brethren, a murderer from the beginning. By his bewitching power, he instilled into man the same spirit of opposition and hatred of God as he himself had and set up his throne as the rally point for the confederacy of wickedness. Understand, this is not a legal battle in a court where you have an advocate pleading his blood to a magistrate who will make a legal ruling in your account. This is a battle that's happening inside your head and heart. Are you opening yourself to the Holy Spirit, loving and embracing the methods and principles of God, truth, love, and freedom? Are you spending time... Fixing your eyes on Christ by beholding him were changed. Are you recognizing those methods and principles of the evil one and rejecting them? His primary principles, lies, 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 lies. Fear. Understand, he is a roaring lion seeking whom he may would devour. When a lion roars, it's, the purpose of its roar is to cause the prey to freeze in fear. Look at what's coming out in the propagandized media of today. It's message after message to make you afraid. Afraid, 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 afraid. Understand, our, this this world is not our home. God's kingdom is not of this world. We have a better land that we are going to have. We have a heavenly home that God is making making for us.
3: Yes, I think you're right. There's there's a guy who came up to. He's a younger fellow I work with. He came up to me yesterday, and he's just floored by what's going on in our society. He said, "If you can't trust the election process, you can't trust the media." And he kept on with a few others. What are you supposed to do?
0: Trust the Lord.
3: Right, but he's looking at this earthly process, and he's trying to see an avenue where he can find some peace. And
0: that's where you said to him, have you considered all this is happening? Have you all watching us considered what's happening in our country is happening for the purpose of shaking people out of security in earthly systems? Stop feeling safe because you get the politician you want elected.
3: Well, I just quoted for him what Paul said to Peter. God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and love and the mind. Yes. I mean, that's the only thing that came to my mind when he's
0: asking me that. So Satan's methods: lies, fear, selfishness, coercion, and corrupt standards, which means false standards of this world, false standards on what a healthy marriage is but also false laws, imposed rules. Changing the rules whenever you want. You didn't get the outcome you wanted? Okay, we'll change the rules until we get the outcome we want. Strike three, you're out. Oh, no, it's the bottom of the ninth. Our team's up. We're down by two runs. We just had third strike, but that's okay. We just changed the rules. We get five strikes each. (laughs) And we'll keep changing the rules until we get two more runs and win. That's how human law works. You understand three strikes is arbitrary. It's just made up. There's no design to it. You can't cheat design law though. You can't jump off a building and change the law of gravity on the way down so that you float. It won't happen. You can't plant sunflower seeds and hope to harvest wheat. (laughs) It's not gonna happen. Blessing points out that one of the main purposes of education is to restore the image of God in us. The main purpose. Where are our children to receive a godly education? Where? In home. home? Church. It's school. How are we doing as a society today? Do our children receive a consistently godly education in our homes, churches, and schools? Can we look at history and see how the education of children changes a society? Does it make a difference if children are educated to believe they are created in God's image versus there is no God and they merely evolve from lower life forms? Will that make a difference in society if children are educated one way or the other? Does it make a difference if children are taught that some groups are of people are less human than other groups? Will that make a difference in society? Does it make a difference to teach children that the only thing that matters is winning? All is fair in love and war. All is fair. It doesn't matter what you do as long as you win. Winning is what counts. This is our society today, folks. I, I, I don't have it in front of me, but I remember the Sports Illustrated um, survey of the athletes and asked them if they had a banned performance-enhancing substance um, uh, that, uh, that you would not get caught and you would win. Out of 197 athletes, would you take it? They asked, would you take it? You wouldn't get caught and you'd win gold medal, but it's banned. Would you take it? Out of 197, I think it was 194, 195 said yes. That's the world we live in. Cheating—it doesn't matter. Cheating doesn't—it doesn't matter if you cheat. It only matters if you win. If you watch any uh, sporting teams, NCAA—they cheat all the time. In the NCAA rules, you get caught all the time. They get but they're always cheating. And their recruitment rules and their incentivizing rules. How about the NFL and the cheating that the, you know, the, the, uh, New England cheat gate thing that they had going up there? Just cheating all the time. Uh, stealing the calls. One of the, uh, uh, su- uh, teams that just won the, uh, World Series a few years back was caught that they, they were cheating and s- stealing the signs. Cheating. It doesn't matter. You won. That's the world today. Does it make a difference if children are taught God's laws like human law, imposed rules, and that God must punish rule breakers in order to be just? Will that make a difference in who people become? It, doesn't, it won't make a difference? It will. And what is happening in the world today? What kind of education are the children receiving in our public schools around the world? Are they being taught about God and God's design for human beings? Are they being taught a godless philosophy of humanism? Does the godless education, the progressive worldly education, have an impact on developing minds and characters and thus eventually on society? Is the image of God being restored or effaced when we teach a godless education of evolution? What do y'all think? Defaced. Yes, defaced, defaced, erased. Yes. So, if that's true, how can so many Christians support the worldly education and the political parties who are aggressively advancing the public school systems? Because they're deceived. I'm going to tell you, they're deceived. They are tricked into believing that school is merely about reading, writing, and arithmetic. Millions of Christians have failed to understand that the primary purpose of education is about restoring the image of God in people. Now, let me ask you this question, and you all can think about it, and the people you know, and everybody online, you think about it. You can start asking this to the people you know have kids. What would you say is, if you ask most parents, what's the primary purpose of sending your children to school to get them an education? What's the primary purpose? How many do you think will say, the primary purpose of getting my child an education is to restore the image of God in them? How many have that as primary? How many have it on their first top five list? On their ten list? You see the deception. People think that the impact on your child's character is disconnected from their education. It's not. This is why the world is becoming more godless, and that's why millions of Christians support educational systems and parties that promote godless education, because they don't understand the impact on character. Next question. Should we support government-run religion in schools? Government-run Christian, should we should we support that? Public education in which they teach Bible classes and Christian, Christian philosophy, should we support that in our education system in schools? That's how it was in America. For many, many years, all the public education that was provided was Christian education. That's how it was. It, it, from the founders on up until the, the Scopes trial and so forth, and, and it happened in Tennessee. Should we support if We go back to that. Why or why not? Good or bad?
3: The government gets their hands if they can tell you what to say, what to teach.
0: So is it the is our education run at the local level or the national level? Local. local level. So local school boards. And what happens if you live in certain parts of uh, Minnesota where the local school boards would be run by Muslims and you have religion in school? They're going to teach the Koran to your kids. You want that? So, what's the solution? It's a simple, straightforward solution. It really is. A voucher system where that parents decide where the kids to go to school. Regardless of their economic income, all children have equal access to go to whatever school they want because the voucher will pay, but the the government provides the voucher, but the parents decide where they spend the voucher. Just like you give food stamps to people the government provides it, but the parents decide or the person with the food stamps decide where they where they shop and what what food they buy the government doesn't tell them what to buy and so that would solve the problem do you know that there are forces in this country that are adamantly opposed to that system and that proposal why because they want to indoctrinate your children in a godless humanist philosophy they don't want children educated in Christian parochial schools Monday's lesson says uh, that uh, regarding Jesus, somehow his work of redemption is akin to the work of teaching. If Jesus is teaching, then we are learning, and what does learning require of the student? Willingness. I like that one. That's a good one. Exertion. Exertion. That's another good one. Openness of mind. Openness. Oh, I like that one too. Openness of mind. Good. These are all good ones. I didn't have any of those down. (laughs) I was going more kind of the showing what you're not supposed to do. Like, um, does Jesus want us to have simple memorization? Here's the list of fundamental beliefs. You must accept and memorize them. Is that what Jesus wants from his students? Did Jesus want us to believe because the teacher said so? Jesus said it. I believe it. That settles it. That's what Jesus said. Is that what he wants from us? Even if we're quoting it right, and that is what Jesus said. Is that how he wants us to go about it? When Jesus said it, I believe it. That's, that's good for me. Is that what our teacher wants from us? To know what he said and be able to repeat it? Or does Jesus want Isaiah 118, what our class is named for, come let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, the white like snow, the red like crimson, the may like wool. Does our teacher want us to reason with him? Would Jesus want us to argue with our teacher? Yes. <laughs> yes, guys, understand, you see this, Moses argued with him, Abraham argued with him, not in a disrespectful, antagonistic way, but from a the learning, I don't get it, I'm not comfortable with this, uh, this doesn't seem right to me, I, 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 in a way that they were humble and open to be persuaded, but they, they needed that conversation, and those are the only two people in the Old Testament God called friends, these are my two friends. It's okay as long as you really want to learn the truth to say, that's not making sense to me, God, this doesn't seem right. No way, uh-uh. But, but persuade me, Lord, and the Lord will do it. Wendell. I think
2: I need to once again say in this class that uh, the science has shown that, at least in American education, knowledge does not change behavior.
0: Knowledge does not change behavior. In psychiatry, we use this phrase, insight does not equal change. Being aware that tobacco smoke is dangerous doesn't cause the smoker to quit. The awareness or the truth or the knowledge has to be applied. It's an act of the will. Everything depends on the act. You have to choose it. You have to embrace it. You have to apply it. That's good. So reasoning with God, notice, he, reasoning with him is part of the process of cleansing from sin because, as it says in John eight thirty-two, you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. This is more than just cognitive truth. It's experiential truth. You know the truth and how it operates, how it functions. You've applied it. You've lived it. And it frees you from the deceptions and the fears. So we won't go through the whole cascade, but lies, believe, break the circle, love and trust and so forth. Truth, believe, destroys lies and, and restores to trust. And in trust, we open the heart and he pours his love into our hearts. And so fear is cast out. And in love and trust, we do acts of righteousness and acts of service, which help us witness the kingdom, and we grow in godliness. So it all starts, though, the whole healing cascade starts with the truth about God, which expels the lies and wins us to trust. That's why the whole battle is there. Okay, Wednesday's lesson. This is going to be fun. We're going to spend a little time on it. Um, Wednesday's lesson. It says, King Solomon is singled out as a very wise man who spoke about animal and plant life and uttered Proverbs that, with great wisdom, meaning... great wisdom, meaning as a man of education. The book of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes contain many wise teachings on numerous subjects attributed to Solomon as well as to other wise teachers of ancient times. Do you consider Solomon wise? Yet somehow he became very foolish, didn't he? Well, consider this quote. We're going to ask the question, how did it become foolish? Uh, This is out of Adventist homepage 330. The mind of man or woman does not come down in a moment from purity and holiness to depravity, corruption, and crime. It takes time to transform the human to the divine or to degrade those formed in the image of God to the brutal or the satanic. By beholding, we become changed. That's the law of worship, a design law. We And understand, we are constantly being changed. You can't avoid it. You're either cooperating with God and being changed and conformed more and more to his image, or you're cooperating with the world and damaging yourself and becoming more and more selfish. But you are not static. The only static ones are the dead. Okay. If you're alive, you're changing. Continue on with the quote. Though formed in the image of his maker, man can so educate his mind that sin which he once loathed will become pleasant to him. Does education mean scholastics only? No, it doesn't mean scholastics. Does public education work to restore the image of God in people? Or does it work to help people become more and more pleased with the methods of the world? As he ceases to watch and pray, he ceases to guard the citadel the heart, and engages in sin and crime. The mind is debased, and it is impossible to elevate it from corruption while it is being educated to enslave the moral and intellectual powers and bring them into subjection of grosser passion. Impossible to elevate your mind and character while they're being educated to enslave the moral and intellectual powers. Why is that the case? It's design law. It's the law of exertion and operation. It would be the same thing as saying it's impossible to have physical health while you live in violations of the laws of health. You're not going to get better lung function smoking two packs a day, and it's impossible for the lungs to get stronger while you're still abusing them with tobacco. Just impossible. Even if you pray every day for better lungs, you're not going to get them if you do that. So that's all this is saying. And this is the problem with the penal legal fraud within Christianity. It teaches that sin is a legal problem and the solution is a legal one by claiming a blood payment to a God that will kill you if you don't get the blood payment. But if you do, then all your sins, past, present, and future, are legally paid for and, and you are under grace and no matter what future sins you commit, they are all covered by the blood and so you are saved and you're declared to be righteous even though you're not. It's a fraud. It's a lie. In this model, they have the wrong God is being worshipped, so by the law of Bible holding we become changed, they become more corrupt, worshipping the wrong, punishing God. They have the wrong understanding of the law that is being taught and practiced, so they become more coercive and more controlling and more willing to punish and use power over others, and that, by exertion, makes them more corrupt. And they have the wrong understanding of sin and its solution, uh, which results in their continued practice of the sin in their life, believing that it's all covered by the blood, and that corrupts them, and they become more debased. The penal legal system is the system that led to people crucifying Jesus and run home to keep the law. And that's the system taught in essentially every branch of Christianity, and it's a lie. It's the wine of Babylon, the corruption of the Dark Ages. What did Solomon do that brought down his good character to the point that he actually sacrificed one of his own sons to a pagan god? That's how debased he became. What did he do? She said he exalted himself. I don't think that's what brought him down. What did we read about the marriage corruption earlier? That's what did it. No, it's exactly what did it. He married 700 women and he had 300 concubines. And once he brought the women in, he practiced polygamy. And once he did that, what did he grant them? He granted them some privilege. Religious liberty. He granted them in his kingdom religious liberty where they could worship their pagan gods and they set up shrines to their pagan gods in the royal gardens. And then once they started worshiping their pagan gods, do you not think that they told him about their pagan gods? Do you not think that they brought him out and showed them? Who do you think led him to sacrifice one of his children? What? One of his wives. So there are lessons for us in Solomon's life. Understand a couple of these lessons. Violating God's design is always damaging, no matter the motive. Allowing feelings and compassion and a desi- or desire to overrule your judgment is always damaging. Failure to set healthy boundaries results in injury. Surrendering judgment to others, allowing oneself to be influenced by those who are not loyal to God is dangerous and destructive. True wisdom is found only in harmony with God and his designs. Now, was Solomon wrong for granting religious liberty to his wives? Yeah, have been to who... Yes and no, yes and no. Uh, I hear both in here. Was Solomon wrong for keeping his wives once he married them, or should he have divorced all the ones who didn't convert to Judaism and sent them home? (laughs) Wrong in keeping them? I mean, it was wrong to marry them in the first place. Okay, but once he's done it, I mean, have you ever heard the saying, two wrongs don't make a right? Okay, we've all made some bad choices. We all've done some things wrong. Okay, so we're on the other side of the wrong now. He's already done wrong. He's married them. Is it right? To keep them, or is it right to divorce them and send them home? Which is the right action? Keep them. Well, I would tell you, uh, regarding the religious privilege, Solomon was not just a private person. Solomon, understand, guys, Solomon was not a private citizen. He was the king. He represented to the people the kingdom of Israel. Before God, he had a role to play as well, okay? He was not just a private citizen. And once in a marriage relationship, each spouse has responsibilities to the other that necessarily restricts the liberty that one had as a single person. When you enter in a marriage, you give up certain freedoms, such as with... uh Not free within the bounds of marriage to date other people. When you were single, you could date anybody you wanted. But you freely surrendered that privilege, that freedom, and committed yourself by your own integrity, by your own vows, by your own personal choices. But you have surrendered that freedom, haven't you? Yes. Not free within the bounds of marriage to take actions that knowingly betray or injure your spouse. Do you retain—see, think about the things outside the bounds of marriage that you might be free to do— uh say go to a reporter with a story and report something that is a legitimate story say your your spouse is running for president or whatever and you happen to have information as a neighbor and this is pertinent to the story it's not it's not uh just made up it's actually factual as as a neighbor you might feel a not responsibility to let the people know that this person has been doing some nefarious activity right but if that's your spouse do you share that information publicly You have taken a vow to protect them and their reputation. You might go to them and ask them to repent and and restore, and you might work with them in godly means, but as long as they're your spouse, you keep confidences, don't you? You don't betray those trusts, do you? So you've given up a certain privilege or certain freedom of information sharing when you take on the role of spouse. Spouse. I'm pointing out uh, some responsibilities. Many people don't understand these things. Love binds us with loyalty and devotion to the other, to the welfare of our spouse. And then and then, if we see our spouse engage in activities that are destructive to them, maybe they have an addiction. Do we just support the addiction or do we work to confront that? Do we call them to account because we love them? We realize they're destroying themselves. How about if we see them worshiping false gods and we understand what it's doing to their characters? Do we simply say, you're free to do that? I think that Solomon was wrong in granting his wives the privilege of setting up shrines to their father. He couldn't control what they did in their hearts in the privacy of their bedrooms, but he was wrong in giving them property, land, to set up shrines to worship in some open way to false gods and support that. He can't control their heart's loyalty, but as the king and as the sovereign and as the husband, In this context, they had a responsibility to be loyal to him, and he had a responsibility to the best of it. In the same way that if they had an addiction, he would be wrong to set up a a, a heroin-opium smoking den for them and buy the opium to come in for them. Now, they might sneak and do it, but he would be wrong to support it. Yes?
3: I agree 100% what you say. But what would you say to those because they actually did put their lives away, Oh, coming back from the, ex- the 70-year exile, they were encouraged to put their wives away because of the influence. Was that right or wrong?
0: <laughs> and that, then, that is exactly every person to be fully persuaded in their own mind. In that context, they had two we consider prophets of God telling them that that was the thing they were supposed to do.
3: Oh, be investigate each case.
0: They investigated the case. I think they didn't just send them away empty-handed. I think they had some responsibility um, to have, if they had children and so forth. Uh, I don't understand the whole story there about all the details to be sure, but it wasn't just willy-nilly. But what was the purpose? They understood that, uh, by the way, if the wives converted to Judaism, they didn't put them away. So there was an opportunity there for them to stay if they could have their hearts change and become loyal to Yahweh. What if a spouse continues to act for self and will not put their partner's welfare as a priority? What if a spouse continues to betray their loyalty by undermining the integrity, reputation, or health of their partner? Is it injurious only to the one who's being betrayed for such activities to go on? Or is it injurious even more so to the one doing the betraying? And so if you love the party that's doing it, you confront it. You stand up. You say, this is destructive to our marriage. It's destructive to your character. I love you too much. to sit by quietly while you do this. I want you to repent. I want you to, uh, to have God's God's principles established in your heart where we have loyalty and trust in this relationship. But if not, I won't stand by quietly and allow perpetual exploitation, betrayal, and, and mistreatment to go on. That is not an act of godlessness. It's an act of godliness. That's why God gave them the writ of divorcement. God hates divorce because divorce only happens when love breaks down. And he hates love breaking down. But he said he gave you, the, Jesus' words, he gave you the writ of divorce because of, what's the reason? The hardness of your heart. Okay? When your hearts are hard, there's no love there anymore. And so God hates divorce like doctors hate amputating limbs. We don't like amputating limbs, do we, Wendell? No. But sometimes doctors amputate limbs. Yes. And they do it when the circulation breaks down and the limb becomes gangrenous. And you do it to save the person. Hardening of the arteries, you could say, okay, blocking the circulation. The blood is a metaphor for love. When love isn't flowing in the relation, the hearts become hard. People get damaged. And to protect the innocent, God gave them the writ of divorce because their hearts no longer loved. It's very straightforward. It's not a rule. It's not a checklist. It's not like so many churches do. Well, um, I I know people, I actually have patients whose spouses tried to murder them, but they didn't have physical intimacy with another person. And some pastors would tell them, well, you can't divorce them then. (laughs) Because adultery didn't happen, you see? You see how primitive that thinking is? Adultery is betrayal of trust. And the person who tries to murder their spouse betrays the trust in a most grotesque way. Okay? Anyway, we won't go on with that. I'll just... Alrighty, so let's go ahead and close with prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that you are our God and that you have uh, created your universe to operate in harmony with your beautiful character of love and for Jesus who brought us the truth. And we ask that your spirit of truth will take the victory of Christ, reproduce it in us so the old will go away and only the new will come. And give us wisdom and discernment at this time in human history that we can be more effective in taking this final message of mercy to the world, to light in the world, that you can come soon. And we understand that, that the events leading up to your coming will be quite stressful and that your people will need to spend more time in prayer with you to be able to discern the, the, the deceptions that are coming on the world, also to be strengthened and encouraged to not be overtaken by the fear that the enemy is inspiring. So we pray that your spirit will lead us and that we will fulfill your purpose at this time. We pray in your holy name. Amen.